0: guys doing today? Feeling good? Hey, I got to give a few props. That was Dre that was up here. Um, I've known Dre for a lot of years. I brought him on as an intern years ago. And I just got to say, I love that guy. He hits it out of the park. Uh, The program we've got for middle school students is just top of the line. So um, him and his team, uh, if you see him, you give him a lot of thanks because they're going for it week after week for you guys. So anyways, love on that guy when you see him. So give a big hand for Dre. Um, My name's David, I'm one of the teaching pastors, and uh, you guys ready to dive in here today? Me too. I'm going to start with this. Have you ever had an image or a situation that kind of just sticks in your mind? You had something that happened, and it's just always going to be there. It's just stuck in there. There's a scary one that happened a couple years ago. Um, The senior pastors, we were away in New York, we were on a conference, and uh, this one morning we went into Starbucks, and uh, JD and I had our coffee. We sat down at this one table, and we were watching this one guy, and the guy that we were watching, he was one of those guys, he was just mad at the world and mad like if you're and he's one he's talking to himself he's glaring at people he's watching and so it's about to go off so we're watching this guy like this is gonna get it's gonna get real interesting and it's a packed little coffee shop and so he gets his stuff and he finds this one table like people just part their ways when he's rolling in so boom this one table he's a, he he sits at this table and now he's got his space he's irritated if even someone walks near his table and so we're across the way. We're just watching like this is gonna get good, uh, and we see. And this one guy gets his coffee, um, oblivious to like this whole scenario going on. And there's only one place to sit, and it's at this guy's table. And he just kind of gra- he didn't even ask. Just kind of grabs a chair, faces the other way. So the guy's looking at him. He's not even looking at the guy. He just sits there. And JD and I look like uh oh, <laughs> Mike Yearly sits at this guy's table. <laughs> he's, he's our he's our lead pastor here. We're like uh oh like. We I don't know what happened, but this guy uh was saying things the whole time. Mike never caught on. It must have been the hand of God because he was protected. So that was a scary one. I was like, thank God that one actually we still have our pastor. It's a good thing. We um it, we had uh, a couple years ago, this was uh I was working vice, and in this uh scenario, there was this problem location at this one store. And so we were working it regularly. So uh, my one partner had to work the problem. I decide, uh, or I, he asked me, "Hey, would you cover on this one?" So I had to badge somebody behind a counter and say, "Hey, I need to hide behind your counter." And the people who worked there got used to this. They knew there was this problem. Cops were in there all the time. So I badged this person. Say, "Hey, do you mind if I hide behind your counter?" And this lady looks at me. She goes, "Oh," she goes, "You're a cop?" I'm like, "Yes." She goes. Oh, thank goodness. She goes, I know you from Rocky Peak, and I saw you in here. I was hoping you weren't part of this problem that was going on. I was like, no, no, I'm definitely not part of the problem. I don't know if that was scary or funny, but it was a true story that happened. Glad that one resolved. There is a moving moment that I will never forget. Um, This one happened years ago, too. I was serving as a college pastor, and there is a college student who lost her father. And so there was this funeral service. After the funeral service... There's a very small graveside service, and so um, just the family and a few people. There's a point in the the service where uh, they're going to lower the casket into the ground, and it was it was it was the saddest moment, um, and they're feeling the loss, and she's feeling the loss of her dad, and um, tears are in everybody's eyes, and uh, right before they they lower the casket, the family had brought this little boombox, and they put on a CD, and it was worship music. And every time I share this, I still experience this moment. Uh, This family uh, stood to their feet, and can I just say, with the purest authenticity, they worshiped God. And it was one of the sweetest moments uh, I can recall. And it was one of those moments where God breaks through. And it's one of those moments in deep sorrow, joy begins to break in. So the tears that are being shed, they're not just tears of sorrow. Man, they're tears of joy start coming out. Do you know that there's something um, that's really bizarre about Christians, about Christ followers? Uh, We we experience crazy things. When we see death, we can also see life. Uh, When we're living in sorrow, we can taste joy. Uh, it's a bizarre thing. It's a different kind of way of living. It's a different kind of way of thinking. Um, we don't take our cues from the outside. We live from within. There's a place that God has created within where he says, man, we, if you're a believer, you get the person of the Holy Spirit. And you live from within. And it's a completely radically different experience. We need to talk about that today. Um, we're continuing our series in the book of John. It's called Revealed. Um, what's revealed in the book of John? Anybody? Anybody? Jesus. Good answer. You're in church. Good answer. You can't lose with that. It is actually, though. The book of John reveals the person of Jesus Christ. Um, it lays its case systematically as you go through it. The way it does it is, is there's different scenes and pictures all going through. Do you know the Bible had predicted that a Messiah would be coming? There's over 300 prophecies about the person of Christ, each one of them fulfilled. And these are not things you can just manipulate to happen, the place of birth, the manner of death, how people would react when he actually died. And as you read through the book of John, uh, he's doing miraculous signs, making claims to be God. It lays the case out that Jesus is truly God in the flesh revealed to people. That's the book of John, and that's a main emphasis as you read through the book. There's another emphasis in the book of John. It's revealing the person of Christ, but it's also revealing the life of Christ. The purpose of just even watching Jesus, all these snapshots, these pictures, images, it's all little glimpses. And he is modeling a life of obedience to the Father. He's modeling for us what it means to actually walk with God, even how to think, how to live this life, which is radically different. When people watched Jesus, um, they were amazed by him, always were amazed by him, because he talked differently, he lived differently, he acted differently, Um, he was was always rustling feathers. When he came on scene, the environment would change, like things just changed when he came around in his public ministry. And the scene that we're going to look at today is no different, it's about two and a half years into his public ministry, six months before he'll literally be dragging the cross, across the streets of Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem, and it's six months before that time. The place we're jumping into this story, it's in October. The seasons are changing. If you look at the hills, they'd be barren. It's usually a season of drought for them, and uh, so the cisterns are alone. The cisterns were places that keep water, and a lot of times by this time of year, the water's kind of stale. It's stagnant, or the cisterns are completely dried out. They're hoping that rain's going to be coming, and they're celebrating this thing called the Feast of the Tabernacles. So all these people are gathered in Jerusalem. The the city is packed out, and uh, huge public gatherings, and it's in this scene. Mike began, Mike was talking about this last week, but it's in this moment that Jesus is talking to all the crowds, and in this moment, three questions are thrown to Jesus, and the way he answers it does something that's been consistent through his whole ministry. When Jesus talks, when he begins laying out who he is, living his life, um, living life as God in the flesh, here on this earth, modeling life as how we're supposed to live as believers, it's polarizing. Some people, when they would see Jesus, they'd either be so drawn to him that they'd be willing to lay down their lives, and a lot of them did. If you look at church histories, disciple after disciple had to give their life in brutal ways to follow him. It's another authenticity, the fact that, man, this is a real thing. They followed Jesus and were willing to die for him. They're so drawn to him. Other people, when they would watch Jesus, would be so irritated, they're so repulsed, that they would make it their life mission to set out to kill him. And you'd have these dramatic, you know, it's this dichotomy. People reacting in two different ways. Some people drawn, some people so irritated and repulsed, and the story we're gonna look at today is no different. It's found in the book of John. Open up to chapter seven if you've got a Bible not, you can just listen along, but John chapter 7, and uh, we're going to jump in here. As, uh, as you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of background. Where we're jumping in, the, the first thing you just missed in this is, you know, this real public ceremony in Jerusalem. One of the questions uh, that was thrown to Jesus is basically, hey, Jesus, because uh, he's teaching, he's speaking publicly, and the religious leaders kind of challenged him, hey, Jesus, where'd you go to school? Basically, in the rabbinical way of life, these rabbis had a very strict um, kind of educational system where they'd have to be mentored by certain rabbis, and it would be passed down generation after generation. Jesus wasn't in this tradition, and so they wanted to challenge him on that, kind of embarrass him. Hey, what school did you go to? Well, his, basically, his basic response was, my school, heaven. I have basically divine diplomas, so yeah, I'm from heaven. Uh, and so, do you think that's already starting to stir the pot? Oh yeah, that was back in verse 15, he starts laying that stuff out. He does something else that really irritates them, Um, some of them, others are starting to really think about who this guy is. He he basically tells them what can and can't be done on a Sabbath. Who can determine, like for the Jewish law, who can ultimately determine what takes place on the Sabbath? God. So when Jesus begins defining what happens on the Sabbath, what's he basically saying? I'm God. And so do you think that's going to ruffle some feathers? Oh yeah. Other people are starting to really think now, who is this guy? Maybe he is. Do you realize that they had been waiting thousands of years for a Messiah to come? They've been waiting. Some people catch it, others don't. Now let's jump in. It's on verse 25 as we jump in chapter 7 here. It says, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, hey, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he's the Christ? They're basically saying, what's up with the leaders here? Either they should, if he's not who he says he is, they should arrest him. But since they're not acting, they're not doing anything, maybe the leaders are starting to think this is the Messiah. So the crowd's confused. Verse 27. But when we know where this man is from, when the Christ comes, no one's going to know where he's from. This is referring to a common belief of that time. They had this weird belief that, um, that the Messiah would just kind of magically appear. Suddenly, miraculously, um, that you wouldn't kind of know where he's from. It's this magical thing where he just appears. Even though the Bible has strictly laid out that fact that Jesus would, that his actual birthplace was predicted. It was laid out in there. So, but they still had this belief that was going on in the time. Verse 28. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, he cried out, Yes, you do know me, and you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You don't know him, but I know him because I'm from him, and he sent me. Second question, and Jesus answers, Where are you from? What's he say? Heaven. Hey, where'd you go to school? Heaven. Where are you from? Heaven. Do you see what's going on here? He's being pretty blatant about this stuff. They're not totally catching the language he's using, but he's beginning to lay it out. And when they do catch it, they're either drawn to him or they're getting irritated by him. Well, um, at this point, (laughs) this statement kind of did it. Some of the crowd were really ticked off. So verse 30 says, As they, referring to the crowd, tried to seize him, uh, but no one laid a hand on him because his time hadn't yet come. Doesn't say anything else. Just know, when God's ready to move, he'll move. When it's not God's timing, it's not going to happen. That's just how it kind of works. And the Bible just kind of goes on with it. And from here, it goes on. 31, still, many in the crowd put their faith in him. Do you see how this is happening? Some are repulsed, wanting to arrest him. Others are starting to be drawn to him. They're starting to have belief. They said, hey, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? Do you see how their reasoning is even going? The guy's doing miracles. He's standing here claiming to be God. Maybe their their minds are just going. Well, these religious leaders don't get it at all. And this is where it says in verse 32, The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. So they send the JPD, Jerusalem Police Department. All right, hey, dispatch it. We're going to arrest those guys. And so off, code three, woo, these guards are going to come in, take Jesus out. Well, what's Jesus do? He just keeps teaching. Uh, verse 33, Jesus said, hey, I'm with you only for a short time. And then I'm going to go to the one who sent me. And then he says this, you're going to look for me, but you won't find me. Because where, where I am... You can't come. Code word for where's he going? Heaven. He's returning back to the Father. I love this stuff. It's just, it's good stuff. He, he uses this little key phrase in here. It's a key phrase. It says, you're going to look for me. Do you know that, like I keep saying in here, like they have been looking for a Messiah. In fact, Zechariah 14 is this awesome prophecy that ultimately the Messiah would one day once again be in Jerusalem every feast that they have, every ceremony that they have, all these prophecies pointing to the fact that one day, one day, ultimate thirst will be satisfied, a Messiah will be brought on scene. One day it's going to be coming. And uh, Jesus is basically saying, listen, I'm, in, I'm talking to you face to face and you don't get it. So when I, where I'm going, you can't even come because you don't believe. Verse 35 the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? Is he going to go to the people live, living among the Greeks, teach among the Greeks? What's he mean when he says, you're going to look for me, but you won't find me? Where I am, you can't come. See, they don't get it. They're totally, they're totally lost. Now, at this point in the story is the most dramatic point in the story. So i got to lay it out a little bit for you. This is, like I said, it's this one feast um, they do several feasts during the year, but it's, 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 this is an incredible feast that they do. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles. The reason they called it the Feast of Tabernacles, if you literally walked around the city, you would find all these little tabernacles, little booths, little huts, all over the temple courts, all over the place, in the fields. Because they would build these, um, because the, the feast did two things. It looked back, and it looked forward. It looked back, remembering the f- two things. One, it remembered, hey, Even recently, God provided for us for the harvest we sustained over this past year. We're thankful for that. But in a bigger sense, um, it also remembered that there was a time literally when the, the children of Israel were wandering in the desert. They were gonna die of thirst and God miraculously provides water from a rock. A miracle. They remember this whole thing. God's provision. And it's not just provision from this rock, ultimate water provided. It's provision that ultimately... One day, and this is where it starts looking forward, one day it's providing a Messiah. There'd be a living water that comes, the ultimate fulfillment of prophecy. So they're hoping, yeah, he's gonna provide rain for this next year, our immediate needs will be met, but ultimately wrapped up in this whole feast that they do is all these symbols, pictures, everything pointing ultimately one day a Messiah will be on scene, literally coming. So the whole scene is pointing to who? Who? Jesus. Who's on scene? Jesus. He starts laying out that this is the fulfillment. Do you if you ever read the book of Numbers? It's in chapter 29. It even talks more about this feast. It basically says um, this feast took place, it was seven days long, took place on the seventh month. It was the seventh feast of the year. It lays out all these different animal sacrifices that go on. When you look at all the numbers, all the animal sacrifices are each divisible by the number seven. So seven's a significant thing. And biblically, as you look at that, it's always a picture of completion, fulfillment. It is done. So ultimately, this feast points to the fact that one day it will be fulfilled. One day it will be completed. One day it'll be done. That's what this feast points to. Now there's a dramatic moment every day. So all these things are going in place. But each day of this this week-long feast, they'd have this huge parade. The priests would get in, they're all in their garb, their robes, they get these gold pitchers and they start, they walk from the temple mount and there's this, this, out like through the city, they got to walk through the city, there's this pool of fresh water called the Pool of Siloam, they dip their pitcher in it and then they'd be marching back. Now this huge parade follows, palm branches are being waved, trumpets are being played, they're singing songs about ultimate salvation from the book of Psalms. So they're singing about what? Ultimately, one day we're going to have a Messiah. Ultimately, one day this feast will be fulfilled. Ultimately, ultimately, it's all pointing to that. So for seven days, and they come to the altar, and they pour out the water on the altar. I picture that one day God will pour out ultimate water, and it'll be fulfilled. So for seven days this happens, except on the last day. The last day is totally different. They don't do this one. They do this seven times. And instead of the crazy party scene, people cheering, trumpets going off, cymbals clashing, all that crazy stuff, when the water is poured out on the altar, there's no water in the pitcher. And instead of the shouts and the cheers, there's silence. It's a moment of silence. And they're silent because the promise has not yet been fulfilled. And so they're still waiting for that provision that one day it would be fulfilled. And what this lays out on the very last day of this feast, that in this moment, Jesus literally stands up. The word it uses is that he shouted. It is the same Greek word that's used when it talks about the blind men shouting for sight. It's the same Greek word that when Peter shouts, cries out for help, the same word. So, do you see the dramatic moment? Thousands of people, dramatic moment, pouring out, nothing's in the picture. One day it's gonna happen, and at this moment, Jesus stands up. Now you're ready to see what this verse says? Let's take a look. Jesus, uh, it says, on the last day, verse 37, of the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood in a loud voice. Just, I need to make a note. You know, when rabbis would teach, they would sit down. When someone stood up culturally, um, people who would really stand and make announcements or invitations were representative of kings. So you basically have an imperial invitation going on. It comes with authority. They caught all this stuff. We don't catch it when we just read through this. There's a lot of meaning behind all this stuff. Here it goes. But this is what he said If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Because whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, i.e., this is prophecy fulfilled. Streams of living water will flow from within them. Now, do you think that was a memorable, memorable moment? No one's going to ever forget that. Do you guys catch what's going on here? Where did Jesus do this? It's basically like saying, this is a religious convention with religious people. There are symbols all around this place, robes. Trumpets, gold pitchers, all this fanfare. Jesus could have pointed to any of those things and said there's life in those things. He says there's not life in those things. All those things point to ultimate life. They point to me. And when he stands up, let me just tell you, it's so obvious there what he's doing. He's laying out the fact that he is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles that they've been waiting for. Crazy stuff. Awesome stuff. And he says this, hey, if anybody, you know what this, I I just got to lay this out. If anybody wants to come to him, this is great. Race, gender, economic level, who cares? It's anybody who is thirsty can come. You're like, well, I don't know if I'm thirsty. The first question I had on your outline is, hey, are you dehydrated? Well, what does that mean? That means if you've ever been thirsty, what happens? Your mouth gets a little dry. Eventually, your tongue will literally swell. You get a headache, you can't even think straight. Your body has, hey, warning, warning, you need water. And that'll start taking place within hours. Do you know that our lives spiritually, we are designed to connect with God? That's why Pascal, when he wrote, he said, listen, there's like, it's like a God-shaped vacuum. And inside each of you, you will never find complete satisfaction apart from God. We're designed for it. So if we don't really have ultimate connection with God, we will feel spiritually dehydrated. What's that look like? Well, do you know that we have, our bodies react when we're thirsty? Our, our hearts, our spirit will react as well too. It comes out in a lot of ways because when you're living out of the design of relationship with God, I guarantee you will have waves of worry that crash over you. You're going to deal with like moodiness. Anger can just come in an instant. It's a sign of a dehydrated heart, heart trying to live life apart from God. We can't do it. It's a warning sign. So when Jesus says, hey, listen, if anyone is thirsty, you thirsty, you showing shown signs of a dehydrated heart, it doesn't matter if you're at a religious convention. Do you know what this means? You could go to church your whole life and miss Jesus. Week after week, you could come and miss the one it's all pointing to, that you could be around it all the time but never take it for yourself. And they're doing that in this, this dramatic, dramatic moment. It says, let him come. Do you know that we could all cruise out to Lake Tahoe right now? We could stand in Lake Tahoe, and we could stand waist deep and die of thirst. If you never drank. So you can be around it all you want, but ultimately someone else doesn't drink on your behalf, right? There's a place where you're going to have to choose to come to the ultimate living water, which is Christ. And we all get to drink. Um, Stuart Briscoe, he said this, God will meet man on the level of his desire. Man can have as much of God as he wants. I love that. It says, out of your heart, what's your heart? Short way of saying it, it's your ultimate identity. It's like your pentagon of operations, of you. And he says, living water will flow. Now, Jesus defines what living water is. What does this mean? Next verse, verse 39, He says, By this he meant the Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, uh, part of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not been glorified. So what does this mean? Jesus, when he declares, hey, living water is going to be coming, I'm fulfilling the ultimate promise, and he says, listen, if you're going to be a believer in Christ, there's going to be a day when Christ is gone, and we live in this age now, But when Christ is gone and you're a believer, you get the person of the Holy Spirit who lives within you. And because of that, God wants to take up residency somehow within, in a way I don't even know how to explain. All I can tell you is what God is saying. He says, when you got it, it is like streams of living water that will continue to flow and provide exactly what you need. That's why when the Bible talks about things, it's like, listen, everything you need for life and godliness, you've got it. Because God is with you and he's in you. Powerful stuff. Well, let's go on. It says, uh, verse 40, On hearing his word, some of the people said, Surely this man is a prophet. Others said, No, he's the Christ. Others asked, Well, how can Christ come from Galilee? Do you see, some of these people are still hung up on this Galilee thing. It kills me. All this, this most dramatic moment, and they're stuck. They can't even see it. Doesn't the Scripture say that Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. And yes, Micah 5:2 does predict Jesus came from Bethlehem. Very line. That's where David was from. Part of the lineage of David. Um, just I, I have to make this little note. If you've ever read like in the book of Matthew or the book of Luke, and you've opened up to the beginning of that book, and as you read, did you notice what's the beginning of, of those books? It's a genealogy. The geneal, And have you ever read this? Like oh gosh, all these names. You're like oh gosh, turn. Get to the good stuff. You're like get me past all this. You know you don't want like why does the Bible have all that? Do you know why the Bible has that stuff? It's demonstrating that it's absolutely historically reliable. These are not fantasy stories. These are grounded in reality. It actually took place. The Bible is one of the things that if you want to just try and go after a religion to disprove it or a belief system, take on Christianity. It should be the easiest to disprove because it consistently makes historical truth claims that can be backed up. So the more you look at it, the more it's going to point you to the ultimate person, which is Christ. So that's why I say, hey, Christianity is never afraid of hard questions. Take it on. Um, But just showing somebody the evidence alone, just like trying to show somebody a miracle alone, is not going to change your heart. You've got to want to be able to see God for him to open it up. But anyway, this whole little controversy is taking place, and it really does point to Christ. Well, 45, it says, Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees. So it's like the police. They don't arrest him. They go back to the leaders, and the leaders get ticked. Why didn't you bring him in? And, and the police basically say, well, nobody ever spoke the way this man spoke. Well, what's that mean? Literally, in the original language, it, 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 it's, it's phrased like, never spoke, thus a man. It implies they believe something more about him than just being a regular person. Something's happening in their heart. Verse 47, you mean he's deceived you also? The Pharisees reported. Has any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob knows nothing of the law. There's a curse on them. The Pharisees got it so backwards, the curse isn't on the mob, it's on them, because they're refusing to see the fulfillment of prophecy in their midst. 50, Nicodemus. Oh, this was talked about a little while ago. We don't have time to go into it. Uh, The leader, the teacher of the law, came to Jesus at night, a skeptic trying to talk about it, wondering, at this point in the story, he's starting to wonder who Jesus really is. Ultimately, he'll be a full-fledged Christ follower. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own, Asked, hey, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? So he's kind of standing up for Jesus. And they don't like it at all. So in verse 52 they say, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it. You're going to find that a prophet doesn't come out of Galilee. And with that, the story closes. And they miss it. They miss one of the most dramatic events of history. They can't even see it even though it's right in front of them. They missed the greatest invitation that's ever been offered, that there's true living water, that anyone who believes gets to have it. They missed it. Even though they did all these practices for all these years, a majority of them missed it. They missed it. You know, for us, it's, it, here's the challenge. We should not make the same mistake that the associates of Lawrence of Arabia made. I was reading that this week. He he took people from the Arabian Desert after World War I into Paris. And they'd never seen stuff like this, a modern city, all these crazy things. Their eyes are, like, wide open. But the thing that blew these guys away more than anything is they were in a hotel room, and they see this bathtub, and it has this faucet, and they turn it on, and water came out. Like, they had never seen anything like that. So they would sit there, just turn it off and on, and they're amazed. They're like, you can get as much water as you want, like, from this. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, When they're going to leave to go home from this trip, he catches them in the bathroom and they're trying to take the faucet off. He's like, hey, whoa, 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 what are you doing? He's like, no, we're we're taking this because we want to have as much water as we can get when we go back, right? They didn't get it. The faucet is not the source of water. It's just a tool to funnel funnel the source of water. It's not what makes the water. It just directs the water. And we laugh because we get that, right? Or do we? do we? Because spiritually, man, you know, we've got an amazing church. We really do. We work hard. We try and give you great teaching. We're going to give you as many handholds as we can. We're going to encourage you to go to life groups. We're going to experience life and community. You're going to meet a lot of great people. And a lot of times you're going to feel, man, you need something. You're going to grab, find one of them and go. You may have had a grandmother who's prayed so consistently for you, and whenever there's an need, you're going to run to her. Maybe you've experienced the power of a spouse who prays and walks with God. Maybe you've had incredible mentors. You just couldn't imagine life without them. Do you know there's a danger that we all face, that we all think that um, they're the source? But in our own way, we could all run to a faucet that points to the ultimate source, which Jesus identified as the person of the Holy Spirit who lives within. And it's our privilege to drink freely, consistently. It's the deepest, um, most amazing truth. And I feel at a loss to describe it. It's good. It's good. In your, uh, If you're following along in this, it's like, how do you tap into this? How do you do this thing? Um, how do you experience life? Um, I'll try to unpack it real briefly so we can kind of see this as we, as we take off here. Um, if you have an outline, you can look on there. Number one on there, it says, like, how, what do you do first? Number one, you retreat to God. Now, let me unpack what this means. Retreat to God. Have you ever seen, like, a city? Um, and in these cities, it has... They have these huge fortifications, and in these fortifications, it's designed like if a city gets under siege, people can literally run to these towers for safety. So if it's under attack, whatever, boom, you run to your tower, hey, attack, you know, shoot arrows, whatever you want to do, we're in the tower, ha-ha, you know, at least we're in here, and, and there'll be their place of safety protection. God uses this image to describe something for believers, It's in Proverbs 18, verse 10, and this is what it says. It says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. And it says, the righteous run to it, and they're safe. Awesome language. There's a place, in a sense, within. Like the New Testament way this is laid out, there's a place now within, the person of the Holy Spirit. We have the privilege of running into a place of intimacy with God. That will be the safest. It's like your high fortress. It is your strong tower. That when, when life is picking up, kicking you, whatever it is, you're being dragged down, overwhelmed, overcome, that this is the place you run to. Have you ever seen that image? It's like it's a lighthouse, and it's this lighthouse in the sea, and this massive wave is hitting the lighthouse, and there's a little dude. There it is. Um, this image, I love this image, because it, it's like that, like that guy should probably go inside, right? It's like, <laughs> buddy, like you got about a half second before your world's going to come crashing down. He, he needs to go inside that thing. There is a power outside there that is so much bigger than that little dude. He's going to be taken out. Have you ever felt like you've been in life and experienced things in life that are so powerful that it's about to take you out? That the thought of it is like seeing something that big coming your way, and you just don't have the energy, ability, means to even know how to face that? I love this image. It's an important one for us. God says, listen. He's like a strong tower. This is consistent language used in Scripture. Often he's talked about a high tower, the righteous one that you can run to him. Under his wings you can rest. This is a place of shelter, a place of safety. So no matter what is hitting, attacking, going after you, that's causing you to kind of lose your breath as you look at it, there's a place of safety that we all have the privilege of running to. So we retreat to God in these places. Um, And this is a place where you can experience some amazing things. You know when you're walking with God, it is the one place that you will be built up consistently. You will be encouraged. Your perspective will be radically changed. It's the one place, no matter if your circumstances don't change at all, it is the one place where stress can literally be released because you're in a place of safety. And the more you realize how safe you truly are, the more at rest you'll actually become, and you'll be built up, prepared when you leave. But I'm telling you, you don't want to try and surf these things on your own. You don't want to try and take these things on on your own. We retreat to God first. A lot of times, if you're ever given another opportunity in life, kind of an upgrade, promotion, new opportunity. Maybe you're having kids, another kid, whatever it is. Do you know what happens a lot of these times? You, um, a lot of your insecurities will naturally raise to the surface. Your fears, your own weaknesses, your inabilities. You might be excited initially, but fear will creep in quickly. Know what's so good about having a strong tower to go to? It's a place where you experience ultimate acceptance And it's a place where you can be radically honest about your fears or vulnerabilities. And you're actually built up and strengthened. There's a lot of reasons we should run. And Scripture says we should run to the Lord often, consistently, regularly. Whether you see a wave coming or you don't see a wave coming, you're going to want to spend time before the Lord. Be you retreat to God. Genesis 15-1 said, Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. I love that phrase. Even Abram was promised a great reward with his walk with God. Um, a lot of people have trouble doing this, though. You know, when you say, hey, freaked out with life, whatever, all these things going on, how do you actually retreat to God? Have you ever had something you're stressed out about and you try to pray about it? And when you pray, all you can pray about is that situation, and you end up feeling more stressed than when you started. Because, oh, man, it's bigger. You start praying. It seems to get bigger. All you, you talk about this situation, and it literally... You just feel like you can't shake it. You can't get past it. So even trying to do that doesn't work. It doesn't help. I don't know what's wrong. Maybe it's just me, but it doesn't work. Do you know it's like there's certain things that kind of walk you into the presence of God quickly. It's like almost saying like there's things God's so attracted to. There's a simple, I'm going to give you a psalm that's real simple, that gives a great instruction that will probably help you enter into that tower probably quicker than anything else. It's in Psalm 100. If you have a Bible, flip over there. Um. Psalm 100. It's a short little psalm. Just a few verses on here. Um, In Psalm 100, do you know what he says? Hey, you want to get in? Like the key that unlocks this thing faster than anything else? He says, be thankful. When you're overwhelmed, overcome, whatever that is, be thankful. Psalm 100 lays it out like this. It says, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Shout for what? Joy. joy. What's the first word? Shout. shout. That kind of ruins the idea of a quiet time, huh? Uh, you ever shouted when you're alone or something with God? It says, yeah. worship the Lord with, what's the next word? Gladness. Come before him with, what kind of songs? Joyful, Joyful songs. Verse 3 is really interesting. It says, know that the Lord is God. Why? Because the, the more that you know who he is, the more secure you realize you really, really are. Do you have a lot to be thankful for? That alone, you can get lost in that for a long time. Watch how he even begins to do this in this little, just a couple of verses. As David writes this thing, he, he says, hey, know that the Lord is God. He's thankful that it's he who made us, that we are his. We're the, people of, or we're the sheep of his pasture. What's David doing? He's starting with thankfulness. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that we are yours. You call us your sheep. You will literally take us to places that refresh us personally, spiritually. You do go before us. You see our needs. You provide for them even before we even realize we need provision. You're for us. You're not against us. Your love never fails. You're unchanging. You're, you don't stop. You don't cease. Uh, you're truly for us, and you're not against us. The fact is we live our life submitted to you you fulfill your life through us, that I have full acceptance in you. So I am thankful, Lord. I do thank you for those things. Do you see how we could do that? That in the place where, let hey, get your eyes off the wave, get your eyes off whatever it is, start with thankfulness. And you have a hard time jump-starting with that? Psalm 100, jump in there. He goes on and he says, hey, enter his gates with, what's the next word? Thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Praise his name. Do you know that's the language of heaven? Loving the Lord's prayer, it's like, hey, as Earth as it is in heaven, what's in heaven? There is joy, consistent celebration, clarity on who God is, focus of that. Do you realize that that's the privilege of us to walk in? We're truly citizens of another place, living here, and it's it's our privilege to learn how to walk in that in deeper ways, to think like God would think, see as God would see, believe as God would want us to believe, and pray as He'd want us to pray. Verse five says, "For the Lord is what's the next word." Good. His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. You see the thankfulness he lays out? That's how you retreat to God. Number two is rethink about God. Rethink about God. Well, what does that mean? Have you ever thought something true about someone or a situation, but it turns out it's really not true? Um, it's almost Halloween. A few Halloweens ago, I was on duty driving down Reseda, um, and I see, like, we see this car, and it's like they have, they've got a dummy hanging from the car, like a body being, like, dragged along the street. I mean, that'll catch your attention, whoa! You turn around, uh, get behind the car, pull it over, uh, get out of the car, the dummy starts to move. It's an angry wife, literally holding onto the car. She wasn't even hurt. i like, what are you doing? Like, uh, I was angry, whatever. All right. What do you I don't know what to say to that. Uh, okay. Um, have you ever noticed something? You thought it's true, but it's not. Uh, we have a couple challenges as Christians. There's people in general. It's not just Christians. It's everybody. We have a couple challenges. One um, is that we tend to see things from the wrong perspective. The way God works is so different than the way we work. And we have to always remind ourselves, this is what it means, start to rethink about, hey, how big and great God is, but also how God chooses to work in life and in circumstances. You cannot figure it out. I can't figure it out. He's already told us that. So usually what we try to do when we get away is do what? Figure it out. But he says you can't figure it out. Why? My ways aren't your ways. I don't think like you think. My thought, your thoughts are here. Mine are way over here. What seems logical here actually is not that logical. I've got something totally different, bigger, upgraded, better. You can't even figure it out. Have fun trying, but just trust in who I am. You don't need to ask why. You ask who. Who's got me? Let me work out the details. My ways aren't your ways. He teaches us these lessons over and over. Old Testament, I love the stories. There's that one about Jericho. Tells you how, is he, how are you supposed to take the city? Just walk around it for a week. Don't say anything. Oh, okay. You know, leave the catapults at home, don't sharpen your swords, leave all the, you don't need any of that stuff, and just march quietly, last day you're going to shout. Don't you think somewhere during that campout period between those days that they're looking at each other as they're laying in the tents like, what the heck are we doing? Like, this is ridiculous, like, what are we doing? We're going to get killed out here. My ways aren't your ways, my thoughts aren't your thoughts, they're learning something totally different, God has another way. He lives in the world of impossibilities. God loves it when odds are stacked against because only he can take credit or glory. Can't figure this stuff out. So we have to come to a place It says, hey, just rethink about God. where You don't need to try and figure it out. You rest in who he is. That's a big deal. So one of the biggest challenges about rethinking is rethinking who he is in our circumstances. Rest in who he is. So that's what we rethink. Another challenge that we have is we will always magnify things. You have to almost imagine your eyes are like a magnifying lens. Whenever you look at something, you'll naturally magnify it. So if it's you know, if, if somebody doesn't call back, oh man, they're mad at me, right? You might have this thought, oh, they're probably upset or there's something going on. We'll tend to magnify. Oh, the kids didn't come home when they said they're supposed to come home. Where are they at? Oh, they're at a Bible study. Oh, no, they're not. You, you'd never think that. They're like, oh, they're in an accident. Something's <laughs> happened. They're dead. I don't know. And your mind starts running away. It'll magnify it because we're designed to magnify. That's part of our DNA. But we're supposed to magnify God, truly. And He says, I want you to try and imagine how big I am. I want you to get lost in dreaming how big I truly am, how powerful I truly am. That's Let your imagination run wild because you can't even scratch it. So have fun in your swimming pool of imagination and try and go there. But I'm so much bigger than that. But I want you to experience my love and grace as you try and do it. And you'll feel more secure than you've ever been. But Part of what we rethink is that's why we draw our attention to the Lord, we run to the tower so that we can look, rest, and you—you know that's why that Psalm 100 is key. How long should you do that? How long do you be thankful? Sit before the presence of God and do that. As long as it takes. Do you know you'll get better at this? And better at it. You'll learn to enter quicker and quicker. If you're just out of the habit of it or never tried it, you've got a simple tool to help you out. Do you know that... To truly experience what God has for you and what he wants from you, you have to understand his nature. He wants us to get that. The first thing he wants us to understand about his nature is that we are truly people he loves and accepts. Truly. Because we're so hung up on that. We're all insecure, all of us. So if we're ever going to feel secure in the presence of God, we've got to feel the security of his, his presence yeah, we walk in obedience. Sure, there's consequence, all those things. But listen, we're secure. Do you know that's why when he saw Moses, it's Exodus 34, verse 6. Listen what he told Moses when he first talked to him. He says, As he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, abounding in faithfulness, maintaining loves to thousand, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, sin. What does Moses do upon hearing words? He bows to the ground at once and worships. And you will too. Do you know that when you come before God, He's truly ecstatic about you? Ecstatic. I'm telling you, if you don't catch this true image of who God is, you will always feel like prayer is a chore. It'll feel like work. This is your greatest release. It's your place of strength. you'll taste and see who he really really is and that'll blow you away it will it'll blow you away do you know that the lord has never been disillusioned about you why he's never had any illusions about who you are right he has seen it all so if he's given you acceptance running it washing it bathing it as long as it takes Because this is is the place where you're being healed up and strengthened. Um, And uh, there are two things that will happen. You'll catch that part of his character will become bigger and bigger. The other thing you'll begin to catch is how great and big he is. And that's going to start firing you up. When you get a sense that you're truly walking with God, you're submitting your life. And know what happens when you start doing this stuff. You don't feel like you have to manipulate circumstance, try and figure it all out. Walk in holiness, godliness, because you'll want to, and you know who's going to work it out on your behalf. You can chill, relax. Things just work out. But um, that's why we moved to number three, which is this. Hey, first you retreat to God. Number two, you rethink about God. The third one is, now you run to God. I mean, you run with God. You're ready to come out, because you've been built up, you've been strengthened, you've looked at who God truly, truly is. And that has so strengthened you as a person, That now you're ready to go face life. Not passively, but actively. There's things now you're ready to run. The things God's calling you to do in life, and ministry. You can go with active trust, active faith, actively believing. Hoping and watching how God wants to come through. Because He does. We're here to fulfill purposes for Him. He's going to enjoy doing that. He's going to love it when odds are stacked against you and He gets to come through. You're going to start getting excited about those things. When you're saying, man, I don't know how I'm making it. these things are tight. I, you need provision in a certain area. You're going to start getting excited, like, oh, this is going to be fun. I wonder how God's going to work this thing out. This is going to be awesome. You're literally you're going to start looking weird to people. You can. That's why when you can be at a funeral, and in the place of deepest sorrow, joy can truly begin to break through. Because this is real life. This is true life stuff. This is living water, and we're a different kind of people. Uh, we're learning to think differently. Um, in God's universe, all things are possible. That's where his sight was restored, limbs grew back. His people were up against the sea. No big deal, let's part it. Oh man, we need a little bit more hours in the day. Great, remember that one story? He stops the sun. Perfect, here you go. Work it out. That's God's world. He doesn't, it's not logical. Don't get stuck trying to figure it all out. Just get stuck watching and looking at him, being lost in him, and it'll free you up to walk and literally run in the things he's calling you to run in. And you'll do it with a greater sense of confidence. And the minute you're getting freaked out, overcome, what do you do? Retreat. Go back. Remind yourself. Drink for yourself from the well of living water, which Jesus declared was from within. You have a secret place that is so secret, even the enemy doesn't know it. Can't get you there. It's a place of your relationship, your intimacy with God. And Jesus modeled it. And he declared its ultimate fulfillment. Is that good stuff? Let's hold on to that. Let's pray. Bow your heads. just want to say that, um, you know, in a room this big, there's probably uh, a couple things going on. Number one, if you've never, you've heard about Jesus. It's like, hey, I've been to church, been to those religious things, but I've never come to Jesus. I want to just say, you should run to him now. And that, that just means that you say, hey, in my life, I want to follow you. I know I've faltered, I've failed, I've done all these things, but you say, I run to you. I acknowledge that you're God. You came in the flesh, you died, you rose, demonstrating you are God, ultimate fulfillment. And I surrender my hands around the things that I think are giving me true security, and I hold on to you as my only security. So you clean me up. I will trust and follow you, and I'm going to trust that you're going to even teach me what that means. If you have done that, you have new life. You have the privilege of tapping into living water from within. Also in a room this big, it's probably safe to say that there's people in here, here who are genuinely spiritually dehydrated. You've been, you came in here stressed out, freaked out, uh, sleepless, <laughs> all these things. You're, just, you're overwhelmed, overcome. It's not, you're not going to find the source of your you know, strength and all those things that you need through any person except the person of Christ. So would you just pray along with me now? as we talk to the Lord, as we retreat to him. Well, first of all, Lord, we just say thank you, Lord, for the service. Thank you for a church that we can talk about you freely. Thank you for your word that lays out a picture of who you are. Thank you that you've offered living water. Thank you that you've clearly declared who you are. Thank you that there's a life that's better than any life we could have ever thought of, dreamed, or imagined, and all of us truly don't even get it yet. So I pray, Lord, today, would you upgrade us. As we retreat to you, would you increase who you are in and through us. I pray that this would be a week of strengthening for every person in this room, that we'd look to you quick, more quickly, uh, we'd see you more clearly, we'd learn to be thankful as we usher ourselves into your presence. And so we're going to trust that you'll even lead and guide that and strengthen us, that we could truly run with you. And we pray that in your name. Amen. You know, if you want to talk with somebody today, um, you know, we're going to be taking our...